Good, good. My name is Kyle. If you're visiting here today, thank you so much for being here. Uh, as Jasper said, we're we're just honored that you'd be here, and uh, uh, we hope you enjoy your time. Sit back, relax, and uh, we are in the middle of a, a sermon series right now called Prodigal Grace, and we've been examining the story of the prodigal son, as most of us would call it, uh, and really looked at it from an angle that it probably should have been called in your Bibles, the, the story of the two sons or the two lost sons, or because uh, what we're really dealing with here are two lost sons. And so uh, we'll dive into that uh, here in a moment. This will be kind of week three of that. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 15. And, uh, and I'll just kind of explain to you, if you are visiting, I'll explain to you what this is about. So we called it Prodigal Grace because it's an in-depth look at the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son in which we really see that God is nothing if not prodigal towards people and that he shows them extravagant grace. So uh, week one, what we learned is that prodigal doesn't mean wayward. And so I always had this connotation in my mind that prodigal meant wayward. And it actually just means recklessly spendthrift. It just means you go and you, you blow everything. So that's why it's called the prodigal son. The son gets his inheritance, he goes and he blows it. Uh, and then what we see is that the father here in this story is prodigal with his grace, that he pours out his grace on both sons, uh, that he meets them where they're at. And, and so we'll, we'll dive into a little bit more uh, about the older son today. Next week, we'll begin to see uh, a void that Jesus creates in the story. Uh, and so I don't want to totally give that away to you. You know, cliffhangers are good. So I invite you back next week for that. And, and we'll dive into a little bit of what would have been going on in the, in the younger son's heart as well as the older son's heart, and, and who really meets those needs that they had. And so, uh, as Keller states, this is a, so this, this series was inspired by a book called The Prodigal God, uh, written by a man named Tim Keller, who's far smarter than I am. And, uh, and so what he says about the story is it's as much about the younger son as it is the older son, and as much about the father as it is both the sons. And so there's all three of these parts make this story good. And so the title prodigal grace is just intended to capture this uh, extravagant grace that the Lord pours out on His people. And so uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into this together today. Father, thank You uh, for the opportunity to come together this morning to hear Your Word, and together, together as believers crying out to You. Uh, Lord, we ask now that You would uh, plant Your Word in our hearts, Father, that it would bear fruit. Let it be something that we think on uh, constantly, that we meditate on, that we keep close to our hearts, that we use it as our guide in everything that we do. And uh, Lord, we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit today to teach us, to give us understanding as uh, Romans is clear that the human mind cannot comprehend the things of God on its own. And so we ask for the help of the Spirit today. Uh, it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. So uh, anybody ever heard of a book called Pilgrim's Progress? Yeah, a few of you. Anybody ever read the book Pilgrim's Progress? Less hands, right? Uh, and so Pilgrim's Progress was written by a guy named John Bunyan. And uh, I watched a, a documentary on a guy named Charles Spurgeon. Most of you probably know the Prince of Preachers, right, uh, here recently. And it said in there that Charles Spurgeon had read uh, Pilgrim's Progress over a hundred times in his life. 
Over a hundred times, read one book over a hundred times in his life. And so I just begin to think, man, if I ever want to be the prince of preachers, right, I need to read Pilgrim's Progress at least a hundred times in my life. So I started it, uh, and I don't really want to be the prince of preachers, but I started the book because I thought, man, why? I want to know more about this. I've always heard about the book, and so I'm diving into it, and I'm just a few chapters in, but immediately what I dive into is exactly some of the things we've been talking about. And so I wanted to share some of that with you. Uh, the story is about a guy named Christian. Christian is not yet a Christian when you meet him in the story, uh, but Christian has this load on his back, this weight that he's carrying, this burden that he can't get rid of. Christian meets a man named Evangelist. Evangelist tells him the story of the gospel and begins to introduce him to the Bible, and Christian begins to make sense of these things. He begins to read them, and he asks the Evangelist, what do I need to do to get rid of this burden that I'm carrying? He says, well, you need to go on this journey to the celestial city. Right, you need you need to go and uh, do these things, and so he sends them on this journey. There's this narrow gate that he's got to enter. He can see it way off in the distance. He's like, you got to go through that gate there, and then you'll find your instructions. And so Christian sets out on his journey. His family won't go with him. They think he's crazy. His friends won't go with him. They think he's crazy. One of them follows him for a little bit and then falls in a mud hole, and he's like, this is just too dangerous. I'm out, and so he leaves Christian alone. Uh, Christian gets up and he's. It's, it, continuing his journey again, and he meets a guy named Worldly Wise Man. Now, Worldly Wise Man begins to tell Christian that there's another way to get rid of this burden. There's a town called Morality, and in this town called Morality, there's a guy named Legality that you can meet and you can talk to, and he'll show you how to live in such a way that you don't have to go on this bizarre journey, this crazy journey, carry this thing any longer. You can get rid of it now. And Christian's like, oh, man, this is amazing, right? I, I thought I was going to have to go on this long journey. This is what Evangelist told me. And Worldly Wise Man's like, no, Evangelist doesn't know what he's talking about. You need to go do these things. And Christian's like, okay, man. So he takes off on his uh, journey to morality. And when he, arrives, when he arrives in morality, he's looking for legality's home. Well, when he comes to the place where legality's home is, there's this massive hill in front of him. And this hill is so large that it looks like, you ever walked up to like, I always feel this way about the candle at SAU, but you walk up to it and you're looking up and it feels like it's going to fall on you, right? Christian walks up to this mountain and he's looking at this big hill and he's looking up and he feels like it's going to fall on him. He's like, how am I going to get this burden up that hill. I'll never be able to do this. I'll, I will die trying to do this. And so he's kind of psyching himself out and he begins to think, man, I, I can do this. I've, I've got to do this. I want to alleviate this burden. And then evangelist shows up again. He begins to ask him some questions like, man, what are you doing? You're, you're off the path. This is not the path we talked about. You were never meant to come into the town of morality to speak with legality about these things. And he begins to ask questions and Christian begins to realize what he's done, that he's looked for a shortcut, that he's looking for a way to alleviate a burden that he would never be able to alleviate. And some of the things that Evangelist says about worldly wise men, I think are so true for us today, and they're good things to remember for us today as we encounter things uh, that, would, that, that look like shortcuts to the Christian life, that look like an easy way to alleviate ourselves of burdens or to not think of things or to live a life of morality. And so these are the things that uh, evangelist says to Christian that I, that I wrote down. He says, there are three things in that man's counsel that you must utterly detest. First is his ability to turn you from the way you should go and get you sidetracked. Amen, right? I've been sidetracked before. The second is the way he works to portray the cross as repulsive to you. 
right? I, I mean, we've even, you, you've probably done this in your life where you're, you're not only sidetracked now, but you begin to think, man, the cross, I don't need that. Like, I can, I can make my own way here. And so the cross almost begins to look repulsive to you. It's like, why in the world would we have to do that? And then the third thing, he says, lastly, that he points you in the direction which leads to death. And this is where Christian begins to really think about what he's done. He goes on to say, he says, consider that worldly wise man has worked diligently to persuade you to believe the king's advice, the things he'd read in the word of God, will lead you to your death, while the truth says you can't have eternal life without following the king's advice. Amen, right? And so Christian is met with this desire to live a good moral life to alleviate the burdens. He thinks this will be his shortcut to let go of these things. And so I think what the tension here for me was, as I'm reading this, I'm like, man, I have done that. I've had this burden on my back that I would try to alleviate through good works, right? And many of us end up carrying our burden uh, on this journey, and, and we run to some town, and we meet the same man, right? We're trying to do the same thing, hoping to have this burden alleviated quickly, that it would be taken from us. Uh, but the task is impossible on our own. What we're seeking, salvation, The salvation that we're seeking could only be accomplished through the cross of Christ. Amen? This is why Jesus comes. We were never able to live up to this standard on our own. So Jesus had to come. He had to come. He had to not only come, but he had to give his life. He couldn't come and give more law, give more rules for us to follow. We would have never been able to follow those either. And so he comes and he dies for us because he knows that we would die trying, but that our death would be eternal. We would never live. We would never be spiritually alive, and so Jesus comes that we may have spiritual life. And so the problem, I think, for us on this journey is that we get sidetracked. Morality looks good, legality looks like a good friend to have, and we begin to think, man, if I just obey the rules, if I do all the right things, watch the right movies, listen to the right music, run with the right folks, then I'll be fine. My life will be just fine. That'll be, that'll be more than enough. And I think that what happens is we suffer from uh, a made-up disease that I have for you today called older brotherness. Older brotherness. It's this belief that says my merits have earned me a good life from God, that God owes me. I have rights. And so we touched on this a little bit last week. We're just going to dive a, a, a step further. We're going to go down a, another layer today. And so What happens is, is when you think that God owes you a good life, it leads you to anger because life never goes the way you think it should, does it? Amen? I mean, it just doesn't. It just doesn't work out the way that we think it should. Uh, I married Patricia. I was reminded this morning by a dear friend that I should have never been able to marry somebody like Patricia. He's right. I shouldn't have, right? And so, (laughs) thank you, Brother Alec. That's awesome. And so, I... It's so true. You know, life never goes the way we plan. Sometimes it goes way better than we could ever imagine. Sometimes it goes far worse than we could ever imagine. It gets a lot more difficult than we could ever hope it would, it would get. But I think it leads to another thing is, is when we're living uh, under this legalism or this morality mindset, we dive into this place of superiority above others. We start to think that because I'm following the rules, I don't drink or smoke or chew or run with girls who do, that I am somehow better than the people around me. Amen? You see this around our city, unfortunately. You've seen this in your own heart is what I really want you to look at. You've seen this in your own lifestyle. You've seen that when you read about a homosexual man, uh, maybe he's a family member of someone that you know, and the thoughts that go through your mind are just 
horrendous. You wouldn't want those posted up here, right? You, you think these things when you read about uh, other races or about uh, violence in America or about things that are going on that seem like they're violating your rights. You begin to feel this way. You begin to be, feel very moral and like you're somehow superior to those people. Amen? I have felt this, and so I'm admitting this to you. I have been this way. I think the reason that we do that is because of selfish desire. We, we only obey because we're selfish. We only listen to God because we want what God's going to give us for listening to Him. And so we think that we're duping God in some way. Our obedience is driven by a selfish desire. We, we only obey to get what obedience deserves. And so we read these things that if you'll do these things, you'll live a good life. You do these things, you'll live a good life. This is why uh, the prosperity gospel is such a big hit with people. You don't ever want to think that life could break down. You want to think that if I believe certain truths about God, that he'll make me healthy and wealthy. And it's just wrong. If we could dig up martyrs and talk to them about the lives that they had to live, you would think differently about the gospel. Amen? And so that's all I'll say about that. I think the big idea for us today is to actively seek to identify and understand so that we can purge any trace of this older brotherness in our lives. This leads us to trust in God at all times and live in humility towards others. When we're seeking to rid ourselves of these things, it's because we're being thrown to the foot of the cross. And when you're thrown to the foot of the cross, you realize, I'm not good enough. I've done nothing to merit what God's given me. He's done it by His grace which means it's undeserved favor. It's because God decided it would be good for me to have that. That's incredible. That's an incredible truth that keeps us humble to think that way. And so what else we should know is that anytime we're looking down on someone, Paul says, uh, and he's talking about rebuke, but the, I think the idea applies. He says anytime you're ever going to approach someone or to look at a brother or sister who is um, sinning, is to always remember, always be of the mind that that could be you. Amen? Most people don't wake up and say, I hope I destroy my life today. They wake up like you did, looking to live a good life, be a good father, be a good husband, be a good mom, be a good wife. You know what I'm saying? Like they wake up hoping that life will go well for them. Most people don't dive down that path. So we should always remember something happened in their heart and in their mind, maybe in their life that was traumatic, and that's the road they landed on. Amen? It wasn't, probably wasn't the road they chose. And so how do we identify this spiritual element in ourselves? I think we see it here in the older brother. And so let me just kind of remind you guys of how the older brother reacted. Luke 15, verse 25. And so this is after the son has come home, the younger son has come home, they're throwing the party, and here it says in verse 25, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look! These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. What he's saying is, is you never even given me a happy meal, right? 
You've got a steak, a lamb steak dinner going on here. You've never even given me a happy meal. And he goes on to say, uh, that I may celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, so now he's not a brother, the son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you were always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And so here you see two things taking place. You see two characteristics of the older brother. One is anger towards God. And so what we know of this story is that the father in the story represents God. This is why Jesus is telling the story. Jesus is telling the story to the Pharisees who were grumbling and complaining that Jesus had anything to do with sinners and tax collectors. They were on that high horse of superiority, like we shouldn't, we shouldn't be eating with these people, Jesus. You, alone, you above all should know this. And so it leads to anger towards God is the, the first thing because our obedience becomes most important to us, we'll get angry when life doesn't go the way we think it should. And so if you get angry or bitter when life doesn't go the way you want, then you possess, this is a clear indication that you have a, this, a piece of this older brother spirit about you. Life doesn't happen the way you plan. And, and so Keller says this about older brothers. He said, older brothers believe that if they live a good life, they should get a good life that God owes them a smooth road if they try very hard to live up to standards. And so, the, the, again, the problem with this is that life never goes the way it should or you think it should. So if you think that you're going or that you're doing something worth earning this good life and the good life doesn't come, your natural response is to be angry with God. God, I, I lived this way for so long. You're just like the brother. I've been here with you, God. I've done the things you're asking me to do. Why would you do this? Look, you, right? And so we get very angry with the Lord. We find ourselves pleading with Him. One of the best illustrations in your Bible about this is Job. Job, This story of Job is incredible. I certainly don't have time to go through that with you. Uh, we'll put that on the list of things to do over the next hundred years together. Amen? Job is the best example of this. Job is described in chapters 1 and 2 as a man who is blameless and upright. He's a man who fears God and shuns evil. How many of you know if the, the Bible's going to describe me that way, I'm celebrating, right? Like, yeah, I want, I'll take that description. And so what happens is, is Satan sees this and he begins to think, the only reason Job does this is because God gives him good things. Because God has blessed him. He's wealthy. He's got a lot of things. Big things, great things, as Trump would say, right? And so he's, he's blessed with all of these things. And so Satan comes to God and wants to take some things from him to test his faith, to see if it's real. And so God grants Satan the ability to do this, to take things from God. And so uh, Job loses everything. He loses his family, he loses his money, he loses his home, he loses his cattle, he loses his food, he loses his children, he loses friends. Like, like everything that makes you right now in this world feel worth something, just imagine not having it tomorrow, just being gone. This is where Job's at. And so his friends and his wife try to get him to curse God and Job continues to respond in faith, though he has questions. He begins to lay out these questions to God of why. 
Why would you allow this to happen? Why are these things taking place? I don't understand how you could be a good God and allow these kinds of things. He begins to ask all these things that we would ask in his situation. And he knows that he should trust God, so he's at least doing that. He knows some facts about God, and he believes those things. This is why he was called a good man early on, or blameless and upright. But he isn't sure why he's experienced all that he has. So God begins to, in chapters 38 and 39, so (laughs) nearly the whole book of Job is Job responding to friends and asking questions himself, and and all of that taking place. And then towards the end of the book, finally God responds. And here's what we learn when God begins to answer his questions. Although God won't answer his questions directly, he begins to ask him questions. And so here's a few characteristics we learn about God. And I think these things, again, it's very surface level, but I think these things will help us be more grounded in who God is. If you don't know who God is, I don't mean that you don't call him Savior. I think most of you probably call him Savior, but even if you call him Savior, what I'm learning about people is I still don't know the God that I call Savior. I haven't read my Bible. I don't understand the things about his characteristics. I don't understand that he is sovereign and that he wants good for my life, but sometimes wanting good for my life is allowing some of the bad things to happen in my life so that good can come. And so we begin to question God about things that the Bible provides answers for. Anyway... Here's a few characteristics about God that he reveals to Job. One is that he's the creator and sustainer of all things. God goes on this, not really rant, but he just begins to ask Job, were you there in the beginning? Were were you around when the world was formed? No. (laughs) Just like Job, we weren't either. He begins to ask him, do you understand the limits that have been placed on this world? Of all the things that operate in this world, do you understand that all of these things have limits and ways they're supposed to operate? Job's like, no. (laughs) He asked him, he said, do you know who keeps this system running, essentially? God does. And then he goes into another part later on. uh, The second characteristic we see is that God knows things that Job hasn't even thought of. Like isn't, that, isn't that bizarre to think? Like the questions that I have that go unanswered are pretty incredible, but imagine the questions that I don't even know to ask that go unanswered. God knows the answer to all of my questions, the ones that I may never even ask. He knows those, and he begins to reveal this to Job. He's like, I know things that you've never even thought of. I know the depths of the oceans. I know what death is. I know how big this earth is and all the things in it. I know where light and darkness come from. I know where storms come from. I know that why wild creatures act the way they act. Do you know all that, Job? And you just begin to feel this tension from Job. He's beginning to feel how small he is. And he can't be angry at God because God is in control. And then I I love the third thing that God really reveals about himself here is that God does things that Job can't do. Just does things that Job can't do. He controls the weather. He provides food for all creatures, including us. He meets all of our needs. Amen? And then one of the things that he says about himself that I'll just, I don't think we should ever forget, is that God puts wisdom in man's heart and mind. God does that. It's incredible. And so at the end of this, Job, he begins to feel how small he is. 
It, it shows the enormous contrast between God and mankind. It's, the, it's contrasting the greatness and the control of God with the insignificance and helplessness of mankind. It also shows us the unlimited knowledge, the incredible power, and the delicate carefulness with which God governs the world. He's a big, big God. And so for us to ever get angry with God when life doesn't go the way we want is just sinful. It's wrong. Because just like your children sometimes want things they don't need, we want things we don't need. Some of the best answered prayer you can get is a no to the prayer you're praying. It's to understand that if God's telling me no, it's not just because he's got something better. Like it's even better than that. It's that God knows I don't need that thing. That that thing's not what's best for me. Amen? God knows what he is doing and he's in control. Plain and simple. That the creator knows what best to do with creation. One of my favorite examples of this, if I were an inventor, of which I'm not, I'm certainly not, some of you may be, but if I came up with an invention and I brought you widget A, right? And I handed you widget A and I said, go use it, enjoy it. And you're looking at widget A and you have no idea what widget A is. You have no idea where to begin, how to use that thing, what it's used for, how it could improve your life. No understanding of it. You would be lost, right? But what if I brought you widget A and then with widget A, I brought you instructions to widget A. I showed you how to use widget A. I showed you what widget A could do for your life to make you really enjoy life more. You might like widget A then, right? You may really come to enjoy widget A. It may be your new favorite widget in your life, right? It's the same is true with God's creation. There's so many things in creation that, that creation, us, likes to pervert and misuse because we don't understand how widget A should operate. But God understands how best all of his creation should operate. And so there are things that we will abuse, alcohol could be one, that are actually intended to be good gifts from God to people, things that can be used for his glory. There, there's lots of things like this in the Bible. There's music, there's dancing, there's, all, there's sex. There's all these things in the Bible that have instructions with them on how to best use those to where it would bring glory to God's name. And we abuse it because we don't know how to use them. And then we'll place legalism on people saying, you don't need to use widget A at all. When it's not that they don't need to use it at all, they just don't need to use it in the way they're using it. They don't understand because they have not read what widget A was for, how it was intended to be used. Amen? We must understand that God knows best, that he's given us instruction. And so in understanding these things, what God did for Job is he's calling him to enlarge your faith. Job knew big things about God. You and I know some big things about God. But what God did for Job is he showed him the meaning of these big things. Why these things are important for you to know. Why these things are important for you to understand. It's more than just fact knowledge. It's getting it in your heart and saying, man, I'm going to live by this thing because here's the meaning of this thing in my life. And so when God reveals himself to us, our response should never be, Look, you, why would you allow this to happen? 
our response should look more like the man in Luke 18 who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or the response of Isaiah in chapter 6 where he says, I am a man of unclean lips. Woe to me, for my eyes have seen the king. Or Job in chapter 42 where he says, Now my eyes have seen you, therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes was essentially all he had in his life anymore. This is always the response of faith. It's never, look you. It's, God, you're inviting me in, I'm coming in. You're entreating me, man, I'm coming. Open the door, I'll beat you in there. Amen? We want to respond with this faith that says, I'm, I'm here. It's not, look you, it's that I know what's best. If you thought younger brothers should be allowed back into the family, you know what's best, God. You've proven that to me my whole life. Amen? If you thought that my inheritance should be divided up again and my younger brother should get this third again and I'll be left with less, you know what's best, God. I trust you. You have to think about what the younger son was being encountered with here. Remember some of those things we've talked about in the last couple of weeks. This wasn't just that my brother's being allowed into the party. It's that my brother's going to get another inheritance. Now mine's even less. It's that my father, who I've been here with and done well with and obeyed and done all that he's ever asked me, it's that he's almost acting like it doesn't mean anything. But what the father says is, you've always been here. All that I have is yours. It's really incredible. Really incredible outlook. And so in short, we want to grow in our faith in Jesus so that we trust Him in all things. Obtaining a steady faith in the one who knows, sees, and performs all things. We've got birds. <laughs> the second thing, the second characteristic of older brotherness is, and I've already thrown this out there, but it's superiority towards others. It's this thought of, I'm better than you. And so because we're keeping all the rules, we'll feel superior toward other people treating them as less than ourselves. We'll be unwelcoming of them into community, right? Somebody shows up in your home group, you're like, yeah. Or you avoid home group because that that one person's there. They're difficult, hard to listen to. You know what I'm saying? Or we'll be... Uh, we'll just avoid difficult people, period. All right? You find yourself avoiding people who are difficult. We'll be selfish in our relationships, right? I only want to be in relationship with people who are going to help me get somewhere or get something. They're going to improve me. It doesn't matter whether or not I'm trying to improve them. They're improving me. So I'm just always seeking people like that. Never engaging in community or conversation with anybody who can't do that for me. And if I do, I want to do it in the public square where everybody can see that I'm doing it. Really got to be careful of older brotherness in that way when it comes to people. Amen? And we'll struggle to forgive others because, as Keller says, it's impossible to forgive someone if you feel superior to him or her. So true. So true. I'll say it again. It's impossible to forgive someone if you feel superior to him or her. You think you're better than them, that they should have never wronged you in such a way. We'd be good to remember the parable of the master and the servant. Amen? 
the servants were given a large, large sum, hundreds of thousands of dollars, essentially. And then he goes out immediately and he finds his own servant who owed him like 28 bucks. And he demands that he pay and the guy can't pay and he has him thrown in jail. This is what Jesus was teaching in that parable, is that you have been forgiven way more than you'll ever understand. When God washes away or casts your sin as far as the east is from the west, he's taking your past sin, your present sin, and your future sin, and he's ignoring it because of the blood of Christ Jesus. You have been bought and paid for. If your faith is in Jesus, you've been bought and paid for. You've been forgiven a debt that you don't even know yet because you don't know what sin you'll commit today. You don't know what sin you'll commit tomorrow. You don't know how egregious your life may turn out for a few months or years or how many people you'll hurt or the things you'll say. And Jesus has won forgiveness for you, peace with God for you because of your faith in him. What an incredible truth. What an incredible, incredible truth. Another thing about older brothers that Keller says that I I liked is older brothers may do good to others, but not out of delight in the deeds themselves or for the love of people or the pleasure of God. They're not really feeding the hungry and clothing the poor. They are feeding and clothing themselves. You do good to make you feel good, and that's the only reason you do good. You do good to be seen by others. To be Now you're being fed and clothed by other people because of their praise for you. Amen? So when Jesus commands us to love others, to love God and to love others, when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. What does he say right after that? He says, for all of the law and the word of the prophets is in those two things. So this isn't some flippant command that we're just to dismiss. This isn't something that Jesus just kind of half-heartedly throws out. This is Jesus telling us the key to life. It's to love God and to love others. This is why we've written our mission statement the way we have. It's to make disciples who grow in their faith in Jesus and who grow in their love toward other people. Amen? This is the key to life. This is what we want to be about. And so it's not this flippant thing. And then Paul's going to take it not further, but he's just going to dive into it a little bit in his letters where he says, let love be genuine. Love what is good, hate what is evil. Outdo one another in showing honor. And so a few months ago, we walked down this path as we talked about our mission statement during our prayer sermon series. We begin to pray for these things, that the Lord would do these things in our hearts and the hearts of those who would come in here and help us to live this way in the public square. Amen? And, and one of the things that we said that we need to ask often is, do I want to be impressive or do I want to be known? Do I want to be impressive in my life or do I want to be known in my life? Because I don't think you can do both. I think you'll have to be genuine in order to be known. And genuine doesn't look like much to the rest of the world, does it? It's not something that's highly valued in our world today, to be genuine. Right? You're standing in the grocery store, you're looking at magazines. What are they all about? About very superficial you, right? How to make a good impression, how to look good for others. And so we'll buy those lies. We... We pay for those lies. Like not only are we hearing the lie, now we're we're purchasing that thing. 
The Lord says, let love be genuine. You can't be impressive and be known. But, but being known is the key to true, lasting relationships. And so when we're seeking to be close to others, we'll experience a deeper level of being known than we could have ever imagined. When, when we're being genuine and we're inviting people in, and this is new for me, I'm not going to lie, this is, this is new me in the last few years, is to invite people into my life. Here's my struggles. Here, here's the dark sins of my life that nobody would want to know. Here they are, and I lay those out before a few guys, and they lay theirs out for me, and we pray for one another. We encourage one another. We're, we're calling each other during the week. We're asking, how's it going? You have to be this way to overcome sin. Amen? It's not an accountability group in that we're enabling each other. We're, we're actively trying to kill sin before sin kills us, before sin ruins what we have. And, and so... This is why we preach through this parable. One of the visions of this church was to always be a place where people can live in honest, gentle, genuine community with other believers. And so what older brotherness does is it disables that ability in us. It takes it out of us. As an older brother, you come into a place like this, and you just you either don't stay or you don't stay the way you are. Amen? Because it's inviting you into a place where you're going to be known. It's not that we're going to have you come up on a Wednesday night and begin to profess all your sin to the whole church. It's not that. It's that you're diving into community with brothers and sisters in the Lord who want to know you so that they can help you. Amen? The, the famous saying out there is, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. That's what we're after. It's okay to not be okay. Come in here not okay. Don't get okay before you come in here. It's not possible. You'll be like Christian trying to climb the mountain with your burden. You'll die. You're trying to do something you can never do. Come on in as a not okay person. It's okay to be that way. We don't want you to stay in that. You come in here with alcohol addiction, we want to see you overcome that. You come in here recently divorced and you're just bitter and angry, we want to see you overcome that. You come in here and you struggle to be friends with anybody because you've been so hurt in your life by different people. We want to see you overcome that. The gospel helps us overcome that. The gospel says that none of you are okay. This is why we need Jesus. And so all of us, no matter how background, no matter how wretched we may think we are, no matter how wretched we may think we're not, all of us need Jesus. And so we come in here and we say, I need Jesus. I need Jesus to cover this part of my life. I need Jesus to cover all of my life. And then we're just continually confessing those things, continually walking in that. This is what we want. The Bible says this of such a place. It says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Amen. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one. So this is referring to Gentiles uh, and Jews. He brought the two groups together as one, but the same is true of the gospel. It's going to bring two polar opposite groups, older brothers, younger brothers. It brings them together as one. Amen. this is what the gospel does for us. It destroys the barrier and the dividing wall of hostility, as we read there. Uh, and so this is the truth that you have to get deep down in your heart and mind. It can't be a Sunday morning's only thing. It has to mark every 
area of your life. Why? Well, I think Keller puts it best. He says, everybody knows that the Christian gospel calls us away from the immorality of younger brotherness, right? I mean, don't we all know that? I, I can't go and live this uh, extravagantly wayward life. The gospel's calling me away from that. We all understand that. But few realize that it also condemns the moralistic older brotherness that many of us will just dive into. We'll show up in the town of morality and make friends with legality. And so in short, we want to grow in our love for others so that we'll walk in humility in each of our relationships. Now, very quickly, what does this all mean for us today? Why is this important? I think there's a few truths that have hit us today and we say, man, I, I needed to know that. I need to work on that. That's something that was for me this morning. Let me try to bring it together here. Keller says this, he says, as long as you're trying to earn your salvation by controlling God through goodness, you will never be sure you have been good enough for Him. So true. As long as you're trying to control God through a life of goodness, you'll never be sure that He loves you and delights in you. You'll never be sure because you'll constantly look at your failures and say, man, He must, not, he must hate me right now. He must totally dislike me right now. And so I just ask this question, do you struggle with knowing that God loves you and delights in you? Who you are right now, laid bare before the Lord, He loves you and He delights in you. He's after your heart. Amen? You mean the world to your Savior. And I'll tell you that I have struggled with those thoughts for a long time. Man, oh man, have I. God, how could you love somebody like me? I make promise after promise, church camp after church camp. I'm making promises to God that I couldn't keep for 24 hours. God, why would you ever love somebody like me? And so like Christians sought to do in the Pilgrim's Progress, I had already established my home in the town of morality. My best friends were guys named Legality. The people I looked up to most, their name was Legality. I wanted to ascend the hill with the burden on my back. And all I thought that I knew about God was that he despised all that I did. If I wasn't listening to Caleb or watching Pixar movies with my friends or reading my Bible, God must hate me. I'm serious. Like, I lived in that. And I couldn't comprehend a God that loved me in spite of me. That, that He loved me because Christ's blood covers me, not because of anything I've done, but because of His good grace. Because of that death on the cross. And so, I don't want you to miss this. Once you get that in your heart and mind, that God loves you in spite of you because of what His Son has accomplished for you, you get that deep down in your heart, deep down in your mind, you will be relieved of that morality burden. That I have to be good enough to achieve something here. So that, and, and that so many of us carry. You'll be relieved of that thing. And, and so just kind of a heart check question here to kind of help with this on the back side of this. So we, we know morality is not good for us. 
Here's a heart check question for you. Does anyone besides yourself truly know about your deepest struggles and sins? Are you walking alone in those things in your life right now because you're afraid of what somebody may think about you? Afraid of the status you would lose? I'll tell you, we often think way better of ourselves than other people think of us. You probably won't lose as much as you think you will. The other part is, is I think 30 minutes or 30 days or a year of embarrassment is worth far more than a lifetime of falseness. Just living fake before people, pretending to be something I'm not. What a burden to carry. What a burden to carry. Think of how careful you are to hide your sin, how careful you are to not let people know the things you do. I'm encouraging you from God's Word, jump out of that, please. Engage in community. Be diligent to find someone that you could trust to talk to about those things. I can help with that. But really think about letting that stuff go at least inviting someone else into the process with you. Amen? We've got home groups here. We've got Celebrate Recovery here, which is not just for drug abuse or alcoholism. It's for all the struggles or hang-up you may have. We've got people that are sitting next to you, three or four rows away. You may have a best friend sitting in here that you haven't even met yet. And you may never meet them if you don't begin to open up about your struggle and invite people into your life. I encourage you, let's not be impressive. Let's be known. Let's be known. And so if you think too hard about that question, you're like, man, who would it be? I just want to push on you a little bit. But that's a good sign that you're trying to maintain your morality. Like If I ask you that question, you can't immediately rattle off at least one name, even if it's your spouse. I say that like even if it is. Invite your spouse into that. Like if your spouse doesn't know you, you are in big trouble. But if you're a woman, find a godly woman, preferably somebody who's been serving the Lord longer than you have. Seek their advice. Seek their wisdom. If you're a man, find a godly man. Again, somebody who's been serving the Lord longer than you have. Say, man, I'm going to buy you lunch every Monday morning for a while, and we're going to talk. I need you. <laughs> Amen? Or don't buy him lunch. If you're cheap, go to coffee. You know, McDonald's has cheap coffee. Do that. Do something. But confessing those things and being honest in your evaluation of yourself throws you to the foot of the cross. It, it, it eliminates this covering that you've thrown over yourself and you are literally laid bare before that person. And when you do that, you are only resting in the grace of Jesus Christ. But because you know that he died for a sinner like you. And, and so you're inviting someone into that process saying, man, I, this is really difficult for me to do. But, but I, need, I need some encouragement. I need an older brother in the Lord to pray for me, to walk with me in these things. And then finally, a, a place full of people who are growing in their faith in Jesus and their love toward others is the kind of place that people will be drawn to. It's not that they're drawn to it because of the people that are there. They're drawn to it because the Holy Spirit dwells in the midst of such people. There is a unity that exists among a body that that, that reacts that way together, that lives that way together, that draws people into that. 
I've talked to some of you who are here now, like you, you've recently come to our church. And I'll, I'll pick your brain a little bit, like why? Why would you come to our church? What are some of the things you like about the church? What are some of the things you've noticed? What are the things you don't like? Like I want to know that too. And, and I always, always, always hear, it's just this idea of either being authentic or being real or seeing people that are in community with each other, they love one another, or just feel the genuineness that's in the teaching or the worship. None of that's accident, right? These are things that we're pushing for from top down. These are things that are near and dear to my heart and the heart of Jasper and the other leadership guys here. This is, these are things that are near and dear to us because I've lived in Magnolia my whole life. I know exactly what it's like. I've been in more churches in Magnolia probably than most of you have. I don't wear that as a badge of honor. I'm not sure that's a great thing, but I'm grateful for my experience. It gives me a perception into people's hearts and minds and the way that Christians, most Christians, not all Christians, think. The things we're trying to cover up. Amen? Final illustration here. Tim Keller pastors a church in, in New York City. It's the melting pot of the world. Amen? Or at least was that way for a long time. Has to be one of the most diverse cities in our nation for sure. And so this is what he says about his personal experience in establishing a church that gets honest about morality among its members, among the church there, to be thinking and pushing against these things. He says, we discovered that younger brothers, talking about the younger brother types, were willing to come to our church because they saw that we made a clear distinction between the gospel and religious moralism. Amen? That to live in the gospel is to be free, but to be religious and walk in morality is not freeing at all. So we made a distinction there, and that provided an opportunity in which they could explore Christianity from a new perspective. Amen. Isn't that what we want to do? Like, I want older brothers to walk into a place like this and say, man, I've never seen church done this way. And certainly I want younger brothers to walk in here and say, man, I found a place where I can belong. Amen. But these are things that we pray for every church in our community each Sunday. Seriously, I want all churches to walk this way. But let us actively seek to purge any older brotherness from our hearts and minds, leading us to grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another. So this, this is where we rely on the body to walk this way to make this valuable in your life. Because I can keep doing this, and it'll be great for me, but I want this for you. I want you to be free in such ways also. Amen? Amen. I love you guys dearly. Would you stand to your feet?